Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. In 1994. We're getting, now we're going, that's good, we're in the 90s. We're moving up. Okay. So you typically guys start these things late 60s, early 70s. I'm in 1994 now. My buddy Scott Green was driving the two of us to a basketball game we were playing. And before we get out of the car, he's like, you got to listen to this song. You have to. So he made me sit in the car with him and listen to this song. And it starts slow. But the name of the song is Better Man. And it came off the Vitalogy album, 1994 Pearl Jam. Sure, great now, song. Gr- Tom Lee. Oh, there now, he don't, is. Uh, I'm, uh, hold on, but <laughs> you keep ruined going. it, Tom. <laughs> so here we go. Two nights ago, I went to see Bruce Springsteen, The Meadowlands. Apparently, Danny Moses says to me before the show started, he's like, OMG. I think that means, oh my God, Bruce and Eddie Vedder do a duet of Better Man. So our worlds are colliding. That's your Pearl Jam world, my Bruce world, you're somewhere in the middle. But it dawned on me and it dawned on Danny and Dan that the song Better Man is so apropos because we cannot have a better man right now in our midst to talk about the market than the aforementioned Tom Lee who chimed in too early, but that's okay. Hello, Tom. How are you? I'm good. And Pearl Jam, Dan and I will be going when we do CME. We do market call from the CME on Tuesday. next Tuesday. So see Pearl Jam live. in the United Center. So see, it's all, all the worlds are colliding. Yeah, so, so Tom Lee is the CEO, founder of Fundstrat. He also runs FS Insight that many of mm-hmm. uh, the, I think, CNBC watchers, if you're not an institutional investor, you probably are very aware of the work that you guys do, Tom. Listen, and, and Guy, we, we don't say that jokingly. We could not find a better man to help us make sense a little bit of what's gone on in the markets. You have your finger on the pulse. You made a call just last week. You said, stick, stick your toe in the water here. We're about to have a rally. This morning, I think, on FS Insight and to Fundstrat, you were saying, listen, the consensus seems to be that September is going to be rocky for stocks. You think the other way. You think we're going to be going back towards those July 4,600 highs in the S&P 500 and maybe make a move back to 4,800. Now, one of the things that I, Danny, Guy, and myself, we've been a, a bit more skeptical, to say the least, of the rally. You were last on with us a few months ago in the spring. And at that time, we were also very skeptical. And we basically started the show and saying, tell us why your bullish outlook for stocks. You know what I mean? How do you arrive at that? And so it's all come to fruition. Right? Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom's call. You've had Does a really fruition good call. mean it happened? Yeah. Yeah, that means that it came to fruition. And so you've also been just a buyer of dips just on every step of the way. So g- give us a sense of like 2023 here. You've been steadfast in your bullish outlook for stocks. And, and why do you think we continue to rally? And do we continue to rally into the year end, into the new year? That's a lot of stuff to talk about. I think at the start of this year, we were constructive on markets, but a lot of it had to do with just how markets behave because we had a horrific decline in 2022. And I know we talked about that stuff in the spring and the stats, like the first five days moved in such a way that it would have been unlikely the market isn't up 20% this year. That gave us the clues that the first five days that we were already going to have a good year. And I think the big fundamental story is two things. One is that inflation hasn't been as sticky as people have proclaimed and were convinced and modeled and this convinced markets and it convinced the Fed. But instead, the inflation glide path has been so much lower. Even today's inflation report, core services looks like 
inflation's up, but it's the entire increase is because of portfolio management fees. Stock market's up, so there's inflation in financial services. And then the second is that I think people had this view that of inflation, the Fed did something, the curve inverted, there's inflation, so company profits are going to implode. And we're getting through most of this year, and earnings have delivered really well, much better than people expected. The only reason it's down right now is because of energy and basic materials and healthcare. Healthcare has nothing to do with Fed. Like, it's not affected by monetary policy. And energy materials, I think it is, but it's more lapping huge comps. So we're in the process of the market, I think, trying to unhawk itself. But every time the market sees something inflationary, the hawks come out. And that's why I think there's still upside, because people are still systematically quite hawkish and bearish. I think we agree that bullish or bearish, it's been a rough market to try to time. And there's been a lot of volatility in it throughout the course of the year. It feels like not a lot of people are making money, except for the people that have stayed long and have bought every single dip. We also advised our clients to avoid being involved in markets in August, but then we advised them to re-enter August 22nd. Yeah. So it's just my point has been tough. That's even tough though to timing because if you're off by a day or two, you could miss a percent down or percent up. So question to you is that there is nothing that I want to be more than to wake up and be bullish. Life would be so much easier because listen, over a long period of time, the markets will go up over a long period of time. It's, I mean, there's growth in the world. Markets will go up over a long period of time. However, if you have a drawdown of 30, 40% a period of time, it's a generation almost to get this stuff back. So what are you seeing other than maybe sentiment? And I know you think the Fed has done, I agree with you on that, but I don't believe the Fed will be cutting anytime soon. And I just believe that we have all these years to make up for of easy monetary policy of from 2000, literally nine to 2022, that companies have to learn to live with this stuff again. So tell me what the green shoots are that you're seeing from here, Tom, that should get me, you know, maybe out of the bearish camp to think more bullish about things. That's a great question. I think in any year, the stock market is a game of inches. I don't think this year is any different than other years. The only difference to me is this year, the crowded, without question, the vast majority of institutional investors started the year bearish, just outright bearish. I had one Boston client tell me that their chief economist and strategist, and this is a huge complex, didn't think we'd get to S&P 4000 again for the better part of this decade. Because, you know, we started the year 3,800. So they thought 4,000 was the ceiling for through 2030. I, if you just take a step back, that is someone who's even speaking against the probabilities because the probability of the stock S&P not getting to 4,000 again for 10 years is actually more impossible <laughs> than the S&P going back to all-time highs. I don't think I should try to change someone's mind. If someone is bearish right now and the market is a couple hundred points from all-time high, I don't think it's my job to try, try to change anyone's mind because I can only respond to how markets are behaving and you know our views relative to the market. But the one conversation that's been tough is that many of our clients are bearish and they actually have very little interest in actually our views. And so it's been an interesting year because this is a year that's really angered a lot of investors. Like they're just shaking their fists because they're saying the stock market shouldn't be up. But look, in any year, the market never really makes that much sense, does it, right? I mean, it's- 2022 made a lot of sense. To us, it made a lot of sense. So like to me, and, and, and there was not a whole heck of a lot of panic. Big rate hikes, right. There was no, I mean, like, 75 so, so, basis point hikes. Sure, but okay, but how long have you been doing markets? So you've, if you've done it for 30 years and you're saying one year makes sense, I mean, I'd say most years the market doesn't make sense, right? Does it? I mean, if, if the market makes sense most years, then everybody would get the market right. How many people get no, the no, market right? No, but most right? people who are invested in the market get it right because they're long the market. You're talking about some big accounts in Boston who are either underweight sectors or underweight equities or this and whatever, or you're talking about your long short customers that have the ability to right be net short the equity market. And so like when I think about most okay, people- but I just tell you, again, yeah. Dan, I'm just telling you, I've done this for 30 years. I don't think- I've ever had a conversation consistently with people saying the market makes sense in any year. I don't. I think the stock market befuddles most people most of the time. Yeah. Fund managers. That's why roughly only half of the managers can outperform the market. You but know just what I mean? to like, be fair, I, th I think what Dan's talking about, and I think of the market, is stock picking. It became a stock picker's market because as things get dislocated, it presents opportunities, I believe, on the long and the short side. And the market's been unpredictable because the Fed's been involved, like I said, from 2009 until last year. So it's the first time that the tide was going out where companies are exposed. They have to manage their business knowing that debt's no longer free. So I think we're in the era or what we thought was in 2022 of kind of a stock picker's market. And I know it's not your job to give out individual stocks per se. You can sector allocate and so forth. And that's what I think 
Dan's really referring to is things were lining up and that Dan, I don't mean to speak no, for you, no, but, but I think I, that, that but, but that made sense. Tom, you've been doing this for thirty years and, and, and I've been doing it for, you know, twenty seven years. And, and and I guess my point is is like there were certain relationships between interest rates, stock market, corporate earnings, valuations. So twenty twenty two did make sense in, in a whole host of ways. You could make the argument right now where the S P trading at nineteen and a half times or something like that may maybe doesn't make a lot of sense because of the uncertainty about interest rates, the uncertainty about global growth, the uncertainty about geopolitics. Does that make sense? And I agree with what you're saying is like, if you've been listening to Tom Lee at Fundstrat, okay, and we've gotten back to 4,500 in the S&P 500 and we're down from 4,800 in January 2022, it is not your job to get people back to those prior highs, right? Yeah, it's not even my job to convince anybody. Right. All I care about is my clients and making sure that they're allocating capital appropriately. I don't care if they're bullish or bearish. But I'm just going to say, in my 30 years, I think the stock market rarely makes sense. I'm just telling you, like, we can't, even if you said last year made sense and this year doesn't, that it's, I actually would say that that is consistent with the history of the market. Think about how many people say one thing and the market does another. Do they say the market makes sense or do we all just have to agree the market is it's hard to Listen, predict? I understand what you're saying. I will tell you, I'm confused most of the time. If you had told me the things that were going to happen earlier this year, again, bank failures, different things, interest rates where they are, the inversion of the yield curve, the restate, all those things. You just put them all together in a stew. And then on August 31st, you said, okay, where the S&P going to be? Well, 3,500, sure. 3,600. So I'd have been wrong, clearly. So sure. you're right. The market doesn't make a lot okay. of sense. But here, let's let's go back to March. If someone said March should have been, S&P should be at 3,600 now, what is the sequence of events from March to now that mm -hmm. should take us 30? Should there be a credit tightening? I don't know. Did it happen? Should there be mass panics among people and lending standards mm -hmm. tighten and suddenly we choke the economy. If it didn't happen- When's like, it going to? Yes, exactly. So my point is, I didn't know what would happen after March, but we can, all of us can react to how the market and the economy is reacting. I, to me, that's what I would have observed. But who know? had the bingo card that, okay, we're going along in 21, 22, Fed's jacking up rates. We're going to let the market trade naturally where it should. Four bank failures come along. They inject $500 billion basically into the market, right? And that's what happened. So my point is this, you're trading those things, right? March 13th, 14th, 15th, during those couple of weeks, right? There's a huge drawdown on the market. What stopped the bleeding was, I believe, Fed and Treasury and FDIC getting together, marrying some of these banks off. I'm just saying, to your point, nothing makes sense. That's a very hard thing to predict. I will always underestimate what the government programs can do to liquidity in the market, and then follow that on with the debt ceiling, which was another overhang that we got through, and we got through it because we have no ceiling anymore. Sure. My point is that to say those things ahead of time, I'm going to be a buyer of the market as soon as this bank failure is clear and the Fed injects $500 billion into a program. I'm, I'm just saying it's hard. First of all, no one said that. No, I and mean, I didn't certainly. Say no, you that. didn't say that. No, I'm but, sa what I'm saying is we react to the news we see in real time. Exactly, that's my point. You have you yeah. can only react to the market. And right. my point is what you've just described. It probably explains why the panic stopped and why the economy didn't collapse. But that also doesn't take away from the fact that maybe the market didn't have to stay low. Do you see what I mean? Like because we get all these questions all the time, and so eventually we just realize we have many clients that have been sitting on cash, or they've been trying to short, or they've been staying defensive. They've been hiding out in healthcare and the staples. And these are just absolutely soul-crushing relative performance issues. But I can't explain. What they want is like a timeout so the market can reset right. so they can change, but it's been a no-entry market. I don't have any solution for. This is fascinating to me. Historically, in our seats, if you're bearish, you have, in our world, clients, but maybe it's viewership or something raging against you. I find it fascinating that when you're bullish in an environment where most people want to be optimistic, you have people upset at you. It's been a, this, such a bizarre year for us as a company because we've had people angry at us because they think we're hurting their performance, mm -hmm. but we're their advisor, so we're telling them our view, but because our view doesn't sit within the spectrum. I think most people make decisions based on the folks they rely on, but the, the distribution of views, we've just been kind of an outlier. And many people say like, well, Tom, all these data scientists are telling us to do this. And then if I tell them, well, a lot of this could be really polluted because of the pandemic and the bullwhip and all this, they're still relying on these satellite images. And there's folks who are using technicals mm -hmm. and they, and there's very different ways to apply it. And then their views 
sit outside of our view. And then there's people who are saying like earnings revisions aren't justifying. So all of these have only made people say the market makes no sense. And I'm going to say in my 30 years, I feel like it never makes right. sense most years. Like I, right. I don't think that there's anything. No, that's a, I think that's an excellent point. But again, what I'm speaking of, the absurdity of, again, you're talking about how odd this year has been. You would think with your stance being bullish and being right, you would have you had people bowing at your feet. You, had, you talk about a client base that is sort of, I don't want to use the word raging against you, but somewhat I don't, defensive in their nature. Like, Tom, how can you be saying these things with all the things we're seeing? Sure. That's just got to be, a, I mean, I'll say it, just a mind fuck. That's why, if anything, it makes me more bullish, right? Mm -hmm. Because I cannot predict the Fed. I don't know what rate hikes are coming in September or or. November, but there's many people convinced that they know what these things should be. People are saying the Fed's behind, they should be hiking. But if we empirically looked at the data, I'd actually say I don't think the Fed should be hiking in September and, and November. And I'm not predicting that. But as you know, even the probabilities of a November hike are still shockingly high. And even September, just even a week ago, November hike odds hit almost 50%. It's been tough because yeah. people who are yield curvists or Fed economists, how many Fed Economists told you there's a recession starting this year, and people marked it as first quarter. They pushed it out. They they could be right, but these are people who are really respected economists that follow the Fed and understand cycles. But then Alan Blinder just published a piece last week in, for Jackson Hole showing that most Fed cycles are actually soft landings. One thing we agree on, Tom, is that the Fed's probably raised too much and that they're done. I think if there's any chance, I can't imagine they go again, but we'll see. You know, I got two more meetings as a 50-50 shot. But the one thing that I know you look for are rates as a signal for the stock market that there's an all clear potentially. But what I'm trying to figure out is I'm looking at two yields right now, they're 485. So they're telling you the Fed in two years from now, that's basically where Fed funds will be roughly. And we're sitting at 525 to 550. So we know that's coming down over time. What I have a problem with is a 10 year. Now, I believe in a healthy environment, if you believe we have a soft landing, there's going to be growth, that 10 year yields should be staying flat to potentially moving higher in this time period or in the next. So when the 10-year yield drops, and it's an all-clear signal for some of these big tech names, right, to be bought, which I know that's how programs are set up, that doesn't necessarily jive with me. But what are your thoughts on that kind of as signals that the bond market is telling us where we're supposed to be, and what are you looking for in yields, really? Yeah, again, this is complicated, because as you know, what I learned in my days with J.P. Morgan is yields are really hard to predict. And the Fed understands that they don't have that much power and control over the curve beyond three years. Three years highly serially correlated to Fed funds. And the 10-year reflects not only the simple things like G expected GDP, expected inflation, but it's term premia and the neutral rate and inflation risk premium. Mm -hmm. But everybody still thinks it's only a single thing that should make the Fed, that the 10-year. Like I, I speak to some of people that they think they should, that they can tell us where the 10-year should be. I agree. I don't think you And I have be. no idea where it's going to be. But how did, But you've made comments that you're bullish on the market because you believe yields are coming down. Are you referring to the short end, not the longer end? I, I was saying I'm bullish because I think there aren't going to be as many hikes. So the short end is really what So let me ask you this. Okay. I don't know where rates go. Fair. Right. Okay. okay. So, See, so let's play this game. So rates, and again. I'm not trying to be vague. It's just. No, no. I'm with you. I dark it's word. A, <laughs> listen, the difficulties I have. So let's ask the question through. The Fed's done what they've done. So in my opinion, moving forward, it almost doesn't matter. 25 basis points more, it doesn't. Because the, the damage and I'm using air quotes, folks, has already been done, although there's been no damage. Lag effects you hear about all the time. All the Fed officials talk about it. All the economists talk about it. Are they even important at this point? Do they, are they going to come into the purview of the market at any point whatsoever? Yes. Guy, there's a chance there's a recession next year. We could just slam into a wall. We don't know, right? Mm -hmm. But does that mean the S&B should titrate to that risk now? Like, should be a predictor. Let's Think about yeah. it this way. On October 13th, the S&P traded 3,500. This is in 2022 when I think the consensus was like that the U we were going to be in a recession, uh, an economic recession within a matter of months. Okay. So I'm quoting uh, my main man, our main man, John Butters over there at FactSet. He's talking about what he's seeing in Q3 earnings. Yeah. Okay. One thing we can all agree, there was an earnings recession. We did have that. So John's saying uh, analysts increased earnings estimates for the S&P 500 companies for Q3 2023 by 0.4% aggregate 
profit during the first two months of the quarter. This marks the first aggregate increase in earnings estimates during the first two months of a quarter since Q3 of 2021. So we know that we had this earnings recession. I think what this data is suggesting that we might be coming out of it. So my question right now is that the likelihood of a 2024 recession is probably pretty good, right? With rates where they are. And I'm not saying they go higher or lower, you know, like from here. So my point is like, we had the stock market discounted an economic recession last year. Okay. This year it did the opposite with an earnings recession. What do you think happens in 2024 with the stock market? Let's assume that we're either side of 5% from where we are right now. The S&P is up 17.5% of the year. The NASDAQ's up 35 or 6% or something like that. Do you have an outlook for 2024 20, right now, Tom? I think it's too early. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it, d- it depends to you where we close on the years? This is the thing. I don't think we know. But you know what it tells me is that visibility is far worse than people believe it is. Because so many people are convinced they know the contour of the economic cycle from here or where rates should be. I can just tell you historically, the 10-year could be 3.5 and it could be 4.5. And do you know the PE might be the same? Mm-hmm. See, so my point is, like someone saying, oh, Tom, well, what do you think the yields are? And then they imply that they know what the stock market should do. But then I would just point out, actually, we have no idea. The stock market could actually love a 4.5% tenure. It could like a 35 Like We don't know. Are you trying to take like three-month outlooks as, as you're thinking about no, the market? Because you just used the term visibility. And I think that's interesting. And one of the things that visibility in the economy, visibility in earnings, there's a whole You know, Dan, th- I'd say maybe the better thing I'm saying is in a time when economic visibility is actually not as good as people think. But I know that the consensus is going to be a bad economy. Okay, so to me, probabilities favor positive surprise. Then positioning and sentiment become more important, which is also very subjective. Because I keep seeing people tell me, Tom, you realize everyone's bullish in August. Maybe the start of the month they were, but last week, if someone tell me everyone's bullish, I'd be like, do you actually even talk to her? At least I can say I talk to a lot of our clients. You know, we talk to hundreds of clients a week. So I know where they are. And I'd say nobody was bullish last week. That's why we timidly said in front of NVIDIA and in front of Jackson Hole, you probably bought them because nobody wanted to be in front of that. Mm-hmm. So it's like a positioning thing. But I'm not saying that's how we do things. But right now, I don't have much confidence in, in yield curve and anyone's economic forecast. Every economic forecast, been pretty bad and I don't want to look at Atlanta Fed GDP now. So I don't know. To me, I'd say one thing that I probably have a good sense for, especially from the anecdotes I've seen, I don't think the job market's that strong. I think it really slowed down a lot. How many more hikes do you need if you are now getting what you wanted to see? I have the utmost respect for your work. I'll say this as well. You know, I find myself throwing shit against the television screen. I'll give you an example. I think it was a month, month and a half ago, you were on Squawk Box and you said into the CPI number, correct me if I'm wrong, you thought you could see a 150 point rally or so. Yeah, I and shouldn't have done that. It's exactly what happened though. It's literally exactly what happened. So you make calls like that. You're putting yourself out there. It's commendable. And again, divergent views are what makes markets. We could have this conversation for hours. And I don't necessarily know that we'll convince you, you'll convince us, but that's just the nature of things. But there are other things you talk about as well. The volatility has been taken entirely out of Bitcoin over the last year-ish and moved from 30 to 27,000 notwithstanding. It effectively hasn't gone anywhere now for quite some time. Is that going to be the new norm for Bitcoin? Or is there this reacceleration based on on whatever factor you can sort of throw out at me. I do have a lot of conviction September is going to be a, a big month. Big up month. Up month for markets, yeah. And I, I can explain why. Let's um, do that. Using the work from our data science team, I think people are missing a very evident clue that September should be a huge positive month. Most people think we're going to be down 1%. That's a historical mean. But I think we might be more of a plus 2, plus 3 month, which would be 300 basis points or 400 basis points versus what is the standard. And fundamentally, the most obvious reason to me is that I think this is the month that future hikes get priced out because we have PCE and we have a jobs report tomorrow and then another one in September. So I think that's a course correction slash calibration of views around inflation. And to your point, I don't know if that drives the Fed to cut, but I do know that there's a lot of people fixate on this dot plot of 6% and thinking, do you know that two thirds of FOMC members think that you have to get above five and a half towards six, right? So the dot plots are the feds are hawkish, really, as far as I can see. I think that gets priced out quickly starting next month. But then market because history- Because of weaker economic data. You just talked about the jobs market. It's, that's yeah. Remember, weaker is like a general word. So like weaker just, it's like the same as the ISM, like it's less. 
But it doesn't mean like we're crashing. Yeah, but ISM crashing. below 50 is not good. It's contraction, right? Just a point of clarification. The ISM is a diffusion index because the respondents only have three choices, better, same, or worse. Mm -hmm. So 50 would just mean same, below 50 is worse, but it actually doesn't point to a level. Yet people think when ISM's at 46, it implies a certain X. It does historically tie, but the standard error is so big that 46 doesn't mean anything. Anyways, my point is that if growth is weaker, it doesn't mean it's a contraction, it's just weaker. Now, the other flip side of this is that September's are actually usually a pretty bad month. Only 44% of the time, it's an up month. But if you're down in August, you already flip to like 60% probability that's an up month for September. So it's almost like it's always going to just be the opposite of August. But then if you're up double digits year to date, it's only happened seven times, six out of seven times, September's positive if August is down. So people took vacation in August, market was down, and then you rebound in I think September. they've been on vacation this week with the market rally. But Dan and I get into these wagers from time to time. We always give money to charity. You and I, September... Up, down. You don't have to be up 1%. Flat or down, okay? $1,000 for a charity of our choice. Are we on? On. S&P, month of September. Done. Done. Your charity, my charity. Yes. Pick it. Fun, glad to fun, do it. Fun fun <laughs> little thing. All right, we're gonna, we, we'll do that. I it's good. I, I don't mind giving money to charity. I'd be glad to have And I'm happy to give money to charity. Yeah. I'm happy to give money to charity. Anything for charity. I, exactly. All right. Get into your Bitcoin I hope prediction. I'm right, but it doesn't have to be. You know, crypto is very cyclical. I'm talking about hyper-cyclical, hyper-reactive because it's so sensitive to flows. And... We had uh, almost extinction-level shocks last year with FTX, the hammers coming down on the regulatory side. For a platform, a bunch of platforms shutting down, yeah. Platforms shutting down and new scrutiny by IRS rules and people lost money, real losses. People have money stranded in accounts. There was like fraud three years. Get to the bullish part. Here's the thing. Bitcoin didn't have any failures. And they tried to shut down miners. Bitcoin blockchain has been working great. In fact, usage of the network's actually gone up. But... Are people going to start to willingly allocate new money to Bitcoin in the United States when you got all these unknowns from SEC and harder to even open accounts? I think it's going to take time. So to me, if Bitcoin's kind of been stuck here, I would say most people would have thought Bitcoin should have just been obliterated to zero. So where are we going and from here? You're predicting over 100,000. That's an if. And I'd say that when you actually get a spot Bitcoin ETF, and it didn't happen, we just had a court case this week, but if when a spot Bitcoin ETF is approved, I think it's gonna be a catalyst for crypto because it's a real on-ramp for most people. Like, you know- ETFs in general, you mean? Yeah. Because it's funny, like everybody's got an account. You can have a PayPal account, you can buy Bitcoin. Anybody can buy spot Bitcoin that wants to buy in, in America. Like, like sure, right now, but- for the most part. But as you say that, let's be realistic. So let's say that you're saying, I invest, and I have my money with Schwab or with Fidelity, but I'm going to invest my Bitcoin through PayPal. How many people really do that? I know a lot. I mean, I do know a lot of people have done that. I mean, if you want to buy Bitcoin, it's not like a traditional risk asset. So the idea of buying it on some other app doesn't seem that crazy to me. I mean, but... I would just say most people have their savings flow through 401ks and retirement accounts. They're tax advantage. They can't do any That's of That's huge. Like the idea of buying a speculative asset like that and doing it in a tax deferred account, I think makes a lot of sense. I agree. In, in a wrapper that you're used to in an ETF. So I agree with yeah. all that. Let me just ask one last question. I know you got to get out of here and we really, we do appreciate you coming in here. Tom, you and I have known each other a long time. Guy, Danny, this conversation, you being very right about 2023, you seem a little, you seem a little different than when we talked to you in the first week of March. We see you on CNBC a lot. We, yeah. We've done, are, are you... And, and if we're all just trying to play the sentiment game and stuff like that, it seems like you're getting your balls blown in a little bit by your clients for being right, which seems crazy. And we already talked about that a little bit. Yes, not? you're right. One, I don't want anyone to think I know what's going to happen this year. I really don't. The future's as uncertain as it was on January. Like January this year, we were in a really uncertain time. And I would just, again, reiterate, it's still a very uncertain time. But to me, the probabilities favor that the market would be higher. So like I'm, but I'm taking the level of the market now as the market's pricing of what the market should be. And I think it's higher. You're right. I can't say with 
certainty where the market's going to end this year. Yeah, but I, I didn't mean that. Like when we talked to you the first week of March, and this was before the SVB and all this stuff went on, I think you had a level of confidence from there on out. And we already had a couple good months in the markets. It seems like you seem also confident about the near term. And, and you just made this bet with Danny and everything like that. And you put your print, your work in print every day. It seems though this is on you. You seem a bit more stressed than I can recall you in a long time about being bullish right now. Does that make sense to you? Or no? Yeah. You know why it's been stressed is it's we've been really busy because people want to talk to us and we've been talking, communicating with a lot of clients, but they're not happy. They're just mad. I'm just dealing with a lot right, of angry well, listen, people. You keep doing you. Um, we're going to put this in the show notes here because I think a lot of folks know that Fundstrat, you speak to a lot of large institutional investors. You also have S FS Insight and you guys print stuff every day. And I think your folks gave us a link and there's going to be an offer in the show notes if you want to go and read what they're writing about. And it's not just Tom's qualitative thoughts here. It's really built on a lot of quantitative data. You mentioned your data scientists. Check out Tom and his whole team's work at FS Insight. And the link is going to be in the show notes here. I think, Guy, why don't you take us out here? Because again, I, I think that we have our views here. We we are not a monolith, uh, the three of us by any means. And we really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you twice this year. And we hope you'll come back and refresh the views at some point. It's great having Tom on. It was great having him on last time. It's an honor. We I think we all realize how busy he is. So his time is valuable, obviously not only to him, but for our audience as well. So thank you. And again, it's very thoughtful work. I mean, it, again, it, a lot of it flies in the face of obviously what his clients think. I think what we think, some of our listeners, may or may not think. And it's frustrating in so much as we think we have clarity. Tom brings another side of the equation. And that I think that's where the sort of the, I don't know, the, the tectonic plates start to shift. Yeah. Oh, and there's one last thing. I'm sorry. No, go add, ahead. Which is there's a real cost to people this year because like for the individual investors on the FS Insight side, we have people who've told us they've been sitting in cash, like mm -hmm. they sold in October and they're sitting in cash. Now they're not the ones yelling at us. FS Insight in general, they're really grateful because we've given them a perspective, but I can't tell you how many messages we get from people saying like their broker had them sell everything in October, they've been sitting in cash, or they've put everything into utilities and they got destroyed and it's heartbreaking. So I just don't want someone just jumping in the market here too. I mean, I think it's been a tough market. Like you're saying, it's been tough, but every year's tough too. Right, you and I will be texting each other at four o'clock on September 29th, which is a Friday. And we'll, uh, well, either way, I'll, I'll probably give you the, I'll, you'll probably give me the name of your charity. <laughs> so anyway, thanks, 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 Tom. thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks. In a couple minutes, we're going to get the great Brady Cobb talking about us. Extraordinarily timely, given everything that's transpired over the last 48 hours, Danny. Danny's extraordinarily well-versed, so we're fortunate to have Brady joining us. But before we jump to Brady, let's just sort of rehash some of the things we talked with Tom about. It's interesting. Again, what I took away from it is his clients, and we talked about this, obviously, are upset at him. I don't want to say every single client, but they're upset because his bullish stance has flown in the face of like a lot of the sentiment they have. And it's amazing in an environment where historically, if you're bullish and right, you get championed, he's sort of become a bit of a pariah. And I find that to be just fascinating, well, Danny. Well, Danny, you talk to a lot of the sorts of folks that, that he talks to still in the hedge fund community. And I think what he's probably talking about is the hedge fund community, the long, short folk. He also I mean? mentioned the long only complex. Yeah, Boston, no, I thought that was a really interesting yeah, comment. Which we've too. talked about. We know that they came in underweight and positioning and so Yeah, forth. right. But like, like if you're long, short, you have the ability to flip on sectors, to flip on individual names. And I just made that last point. And I, I didn't, I, I wasn't making it to give him a hard time. I mean, we've all known him for a long time. I mean, like he seems like he's right on the stock market this year and he seems really unhappy about it. Like, here's like, here's like the way his interactions are going with his clients. What does that say about sentiment, Dan? I would say the one thing that he is doing well is, and he mentioned it many times, he's basically getting a feel for the market from the inbounds, whether it's hate mail. And he knows that when everybody's on the other side that he should probably stay bullish. And he'll admit, like he's potentially September is going to be rough. And he may be sensing right now that people are last, this last rally of three and a half or 4% well, on the S&P. He thinks it keeps going. Well, he said that, but he's also said a little bit of a caveat. I'm worried about jobs. I'm worried about yeah. economics. So he's not tying economic numbers to what the market's going to be doing. I believe that may work short term, but over the long term, that's all that's going to matter as far as card speaking, as far as slowdown, if there was a slowdown or not. But I think what he does have, because he does talk to many people, is a sentiment indicator. And that's why he flips from time to time, bearish or bullish. Yeah. 
obviously. But you made the point. It is really hard to do that on a month-to-month basis here. Especially so so let's just talk about this since we were all together last week on the tape podcast here. It's interesting. So Friday morning, NVIDIA gapped up 10%. Okay. It was at a new all-time high. And by the end of the day, it closed unchanged on the day. We talked about that. That was $120 billion in market cap from the highs. Okay. So here we are now. It's back up. It's it's made a new high week on week here. We have a bunch of software stocks that, you know, in related-ish to that talking about AI are screaming today after the results. Salesforce is up. It's definitely off of its highs. CrowdStrike guy is one. Octa's up. So it seems like money's gone right back into that thing. Whatever we thought might have happened, a cooling off period here, you know what I mean, a little bit, it's like they're right back in there. Yeah, uh, through my lens, it's two reasons. One, rates are lower, which has been the knee-jerk reaction with lower rates have been to flood into these stocks. And two, the typical month-end markup that we see over the course of history, which, again, makes a lot of sense in these names. This markup obviously will make your portfolio look better at month end. So I think there's some of that going on. Great company, all great things. Again, it's going to sound like sour grapes on my end, but to answer your question, I think that's a lot of it. It's a 5% move off of that 471 number. It's not like it's that could be erased. It could be accelerated to the up. It also could be erased. And one day I wouldn't overread it. We were talking on Market Call on Tuesday about when you look at the Hewlett Packards and the box of the world, enterprise spending is obviously slowing, right? The, you know, the growth rate has been slowing. However, AI, these companies are producing higher growth and people are going to pay a premium for that. So your point, Dan, is that money's not leaving the market overall. It's finding a new home. And now it's going back into the areas where people can rely on the type, whatever factors people use, you know, these growth factors that yeah. people use. And they know they're good for another quarter, at least in NVIDIA for the time being, right? Because they did guide higher again. And again, valuation doesn't make sense unless you think this is going to be continuing. But maybe the proof is on the bears here to, to get them out of the way. But again, I think this knee-jerk reaction to 10-year yields specifically or Fed fund futures specifically triggering rallies in the market, right? We're not talking about big moves in Fed fund futures. We're talking about a 15% chance of a raise to a 10. And if you, again, if you Cobble September and November together, those two meetings were effectively still the same chance of a rate. I call it 50 50. I'm not a believer that they're going again, but that doesn't make me bullish per se. But, All right. So, know. guy, one, one last thing here, and this is important. So, so, Dollar Gen today, this is Thursday into the close. This is a retailer serving a consumer on, on the low end here. The stock is down, I think, 12%. It's down, I think it was trading $260 in December of last year. It's trading at below $140. What Dollar Gen and Dollar Tree have said about their consumer right now is I, I just don't understand like how we can be thinking about the economy and not focused how it's being dragged down on the low end right Right now, and you've talked about the lag that we've seen in just the rate increases and, and what we've seen in consumer credit and the savings rate being drawn down. It's like smacking us in the face here in retail over, over the last few weeks. But I think Dollar Gen and Dollar Tree in particular are saying something about a lower end consumer that I just under, I, I don't understand how consumer discretionary up above is not paying more attention. Well, to, to synthesize that, typically, historically, the trade down has been to Dollar Tree and Dollar Gen. So one has to ask themselves, if the trade down has been to those companies, what are they trading down to now for their customer base to be fleeing the way it is? That obviously is not particularly good. And all of these things are out there. These are factually happening. Yet the market flies in the face of well, it. Well, and Danny, you've talked about Walmart. This is one of your picks to click, I think, yeah. all year long. Yeah. As we're talking right now, it's making a new all-time high. And so when you put those two things against each other, because Walmart has been talking about a trade down that they have been a beneficiary of. So you have the bottom end falling out. And then if you look at Walmart, it's it's basically sopping it all up right here. Yeah, it's it's not overly cheap. But again, it's stable. What is it, 23, 24 times earnings, I think, at this point. It's got an OK dividend yield, nice stock buyback. They're also on the e-commerce side have been doing much better. So it's a safe name again. And I think people, the one thing you'll always underestimate or appreciate, people are willing to pay a premium to historical valuations in this market right now for consistency and certainty. And I think that's warranted to a degree because you need to put your money somewhere. As Tom mentioned before, like cash hasn't been a good place, even though you're now getting 5%, I would argue maybe a good place from here on out potentially for a few months. But again, I think these quality names will rise to the top. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing overall. But I think, again, we talked about this before, 
I'm not saying we're going into recession right now, but I'm saying all the things that we thought were going to be happening six or seven months ago feels like they're happening now. You're talking about the lowering consumer being extended. Higher rates are finally having an impact. I talked on Market Call the other day about my buddy who has a $200 million revenue business who had an account at KeyBank for 25 years, $30 million in EBITDA. It's now gone from KeyBank. They told they have to charge him so for plus 400. He left. Those are the type of things that are happening. Not every company has the ability to absorb that rate increase like he does. And again, those are small and mid-sized businesses. It's happening now. So I think we're, this is a very dicey period of time. So pay attention to well, the Well, the last thing I'll just say here on the retail front too, and we talked about this guy a little bit after the Amazon results, when you saw the operating margins that they had and the way the stock gapped up after that, I think it was a few weeks ago, it gapped up 10%. This today, Shopify is up about 11% or so. They inked a deal with Amazon allowing the sellers on their platform to use their logistics, that, that sort of things. So maybe this is so 10 years ago. It seems like e-commerce is also having a moment again, especially as we've seen all of these results from these department stores and some of these big box guys that haven't been particularly great other than Walmart. So again, the retail thing to me, I, I think because there's so much dispersion in the way the stocks have acted over the last few uh, months, but really over the last few weeks during earnings, I think that's one to keep an eye on because maybe the rest of this stuff is just like rising tides lifting all boats in a market that seems to just want to go higher despite so much pessimism. And that, that's my biggest takeaway from that conversation with Tom. Yeah. And to put a bow on this, when Tom sees things that will make, he will be the first person to say, hey, we're turning this bus around, and as good as it's been, we're starting to see some reasons to be cautious and bearish. And that's happened along the way. My frustration is his mindset doesn't line up with mine, and it makes me a little crazy, as I mentioned. But that doesn't mean he hasn't been right. You said you were throwing things at the, t the Absolutely TV. Absolutely. Okay, well, listen, we appreciate Tom coming on here, and I'm really fired up to hear what Brady and has to say about this news in cannabis, because it sounds big. Stick around for that conversation with Brady Tom. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to On The Tape. Once again, we're going to have breaking news in the cannabis sector. Breaking news. And I want to, before Brady Cobb comes on here, we're going to have him on here. I went back and looked on October 6th of last year, our episode of 2022, which came out on October 7th. Funny enough, it was a Mike Wilson episode. Stop it. It was a Mike Wilson episode. It felt it like the market was going to stay down at that point. News came out that President Biden had pardoned on the federal level. Brady talked about it then. We'll talk about it again. People that have been convicted of possession in federal lockup and recommended that states undertake the same process. Also at that moment, he instructed Health and Human Services Secretary to examine cannabis as a Schedule One drug to look at a rescheduling or descheduling potential. That was the setup then. Stocks went crazy that day, obviously, and we had Brady on to talk about it. So Brady Cobb, welcome back to On the Tape. I know you're busy down there with sunburn, and we'll talk about that in, in, a, in a bit here. But Let's get right into the news that came out, the letter that was sent to the DEA from HHS. Yeah, it's great to be back. I think the order from the president was October 22nd. So it's been just about 10 months and the cannabis sector has been absolute max pain 
for that entire time period. All time lows pretty much every other day. It was Groundhog Day. We're getting kicked in the shins. We had a bit of a run up towards the end of last year with the Chuck Schumer dangling the carrot of safe banking and that ultimately died again. And ever since then, it has been off a cliff. As you well know, Danny, having tough aside me as we, we've helped in build Sunburn. So to see this finally happen, I think one of the things that maybe didn't get reported well, but it needs to be said is you just had a letter authored by the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services for the United States federal government that said that based on a scientific review conducted by the Food and Drug Administration, that cannabis has basically medicinal benefits and based on the science should be moved from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. Stop right there. That's the biggest fucking thing to happen for this sector ever. I agree. Ever since it was added. I would liken this to basically finding out that they're going to repeal the Volstead Act. Now, it took some time once the federal government decided in 1933 that alcohol prohibition was going to end. It took 9, 12 months for it to actually be implemented. Plus, everything was by carrier pigeon back then, so it wasn't as quick. But that's basically what happened yesterday. And now the that letter was sent to the DEA. Then at 420, Secretary Becerra wanted to have his little 420 moment. He had his press conference. He did not puff or pass, but he did get up on stage and confirm what the Bloomberg article had leaked out that there was this letter. And then the DEA confirmed receipt late yesterday, too. So now it's in the DEA's hands. You now have political appointees from the same party. They're working for the president and the executive branch of the government that have are exchanging letters now to basically put this to Schedule 3. And I'm happy to talk about what Schedule 3 could potentially mean, but I just, you'd love to hear what your guys' thoughts are. You've watched this sector. You looked at yesterday, that letter came out. I was on a, get ready to get on a train up to Palm Beach yesterday to go visit our store up there. And I, I was literally running up and down the platform of the train, hugging and kissing anybody that would let me. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, before we get, get into that, let me just say, these days. Yeah. let me say before we get into for people that don't understand Schedule 1, Schedule 2, Schedule 3, so drugs are put on a schedule by the FDA, and Schedule 1, just so people understand, was L- or is LSD, heroin, and meth, okay? That's where cannabis It's the was. worst of the worst. Because of, no medically acceptable That was Nixon use. in 1972, correct. The, the he, schedule, he started the, he weaponized the uh, CSA to create a war on drugs for a myriad of political reasons that I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But exactly. Yes. Schedule two is cocaine, fentanyl, and oxycontin. I just want to put that. And schedule three- Cannabis is a higher schedule than fentanyl. Exactly. I like that, it was. And then yeah. schedule three, I just want people to relate to this, is Tylenol with codeine. Okay, so is, let's put that frame in. So before we talk, and I want to also mention that I just think we talked about that the head of the DEA, as you mentioned, is a Biden appointee. She was the attorney general in New Jersey that oversaw the medical program. She has been supportive, at the very least, of states' rights for cannabis for medical reasons. That's all you really need for this point. This is not to be conflated with federal legalization or anything like that. But I know, Guy, you had a quick question before we get so Here's my question. And by the way, I'm a huge Brady Cobb fan. Obviously. As handsome as you are, Danny? Yeah. He's that much more. It's like an exponential thing. Here's my question. How bipartisan is this? Or does that even matter at this point, Brady? It's If you would ask me that question five years ago, the answer would have been not very bipartisan at all outside of a select few Republicans in Congress. But over the last five years, it's really pivoted. I think if there were to be a floor vote today on the Safe Banking Act, which I've come on your, this podcast and talked about a bunch, if there was a floor vote, I think you'd get north of 15 Republicans signing on. And it's already passed the House six times with over 100 Republican votes. So cannabis reform as a whole is very bipartisan. It's just within the cannabis movement. There's various different sides, like you would imagine. There's those that think it should be immediately descheduled. Uh, there's those that think it should be a more kind of incrementalism-based approach. That's where I subscribe to. But ultimately, it's gotten incredibly bipartisan. The last Gallup poll that I saw was north of 50% of Republicans favor a recreational use across the country, which is if you were to look back at polls, call it three to four years ago on the same topic, that Republican number was barely creeping up over 20 to 25%. The same Gallup poll from June was I think 83 or 84% of Americans favor legalization. And I think you guys well know this. I don't think that if you walk down the street in any city right now, you can get eight or 10 Americans to agree on just about anything, except that Russia definitely shot down that airplane the other day. I think we all know that happened. Outside of that, we're not agreeing on anything. It's a bipartisan issue. It's unfortunately, D.C. is just lagging way behind public sentiment. And you got to look at this guy. 41 states have cannabis legal in one way or the other. As Maxine, Representative Maxine Waters once said on the House floor when safe banking came up, the genie's not going back. And the federal government with the move yesterday took one step closer to find a kind of 
harmonizing that distinction between state and federal law. And I would say, Brady, just so we can go back through this, we've had failed attempts at safe banking, some other reforms that have been out there. This supersedes them all because going to a Schedule 3 takes care of 280E, which I want you to talk about because that's been a huge overhang for many cannabis companies. And it also, from a banking perspective, clears the way for other industries such as alcohol, other CBG companies to come into this sector without worrying about losing any type of license that they have. And so it feels like now safe with this as the backdrop, assuming it obviously gets the rubber stamp of approval from the DEA, safe is a foregone conclusion. So we're going to have some type of structure on it. We went through this last year when it happened, when the announcement was made that the president was ordering this review. We talked about the fact that this is the ultimate, this is the prize. And this is, this supersedes, number one, it doesn't require Congress to vote and agree on anything, which is incredibly hard to get on unless you're doing a continuing resolution or one of the must-pass bills like the NDAA. There hasn't been a lot of legislation passed just because it's been a bit of gridlock, hyper-partisan gridlocks. This requires no action whatsoever from Congress and Mitch McConnell can't try to block it and nobody can try to block it. So that was always a net positive. But from an actual impact standpoint, The single biggest catalyst for this marketplace, there's two things. Number one, access to the U.S. financial system, as well as capital market, U.S. capital markets, and then the 280E fix. So 280E, for those those out there listening that don't know what that is, in response to the Colombian drug cartels setting up legitimate businesses in the U.S. to wash the cash back in the 70s and 80s, Congress passed a, a revision of Section 280E to the IRS tax code that basically, you are violating Schedule 1 in any way, shape, or form. You cannot deduct cost of sales. So the effective tax rate on cannabis companies is north of 55%. That is far in excess, even when you when we added some of these companies that are operating in states that have high state taxes too, that tax rate on federal, on multi-state operators, federal and state can be north of 60%. And if you look at a company like GTI, who I think last year reported a 62 effective, 62% effective tax rate, they were still able to generate positive net income. Uh, and they're doing, they've done that now for about 11 quarters. So imagine what happens when 30% of that tax goes right away and that money flows down to the bottom line. There's a big unlock coming from a valuation standpoint and a cash flow standpoint. On the other piece of kind of access to financial markets, the main reason of the, the, the gating issue with respect to cannabis and cannabis operators, state legal cannabis operators being able to bank, credit card processing, not just debit cards, and or accessing U.S. exchanges instead of these Canadian exchanges we've been forced to deal with that are incredibly inefficient is the anti-money laundering statute. So right now, there's cannabis being Schedule 1. If a bank were to transact or an exchange were allowed U.S. shares to trade for a plant-touching entity, they'd technically be engaging in anti-money laundering. And unless they do all the enhanced disclosures that's required, which is incredibly burdensome, they couldn't actually process the transactions, which is what's kept everybody away. The minute it's no longer on Schedule 1, that problem goes away. So it's a big gating issue. So now you're talking about these companies that have been trading at one and two times EBITDA, even though they're generating cash amidst the higher tax rates. And they're on these inefficient exchanges in Canada. There's several of them that are going to potentially have the opportunity to come to the U.S. and access the U.S. exchange. If you saw what Terracent just did, which is a U.S. operator, they were the first to list on a big board on TSX. And their volume has skyrocketed because people can actually buy it. Morgan Stanley customers can buy it. And several of the large brokerage houses can buy it, whereas normally you couldn't. And if you did, you're on some CSE. I, I, I was a CEO of a company on a CSE. They allow naked shorting. So there's just a ton of market manipulation on its exchanges. This is a big moment for the U.S. operators. And it's kind of bullshit. This is a U.S. growth industry. This is one of the highest and fastest growing businesses from a, a hiring standpoint during COVID in the country. But yet we have to list and bank in Canada. It's, it's a really big moment. If you could just touch on the alcohol companies in general and other CPGs that now have the green light potentially upon a change, I think that is the, probably the most crucial thing. You've got our natural kind of predators, you know, barbarians at the gate, as you'd say, alcohol, tobacco, they are CPG. They now can play. So they've been unable to enter and make investments in a meaningful way. They're doing placeholder bets. And if you follow in what Erwin Simon's done up at Tilray, it takes a lot of crap. But if you look at what he's been assembling, he's been buying brands, alcohol brands, and he's been buying alcohol manufacturers, and he's been buying distribution, getting ready. So if you follow the breadcrumbs that Erwin's putting down, or you follow the breadcrumbs that Constellation's been laying down with their investments in the space via Canopy and Canopy USA, it's, you've seen that they've been nibbling, but now that nib- this gets through, there's no more nibbling. They can come in and participate. And that's where you're going to think you're going to see some big moments happen. It's just, what does it mean? You still got to pick your bets wisely. I'm a big fan of GTI. That's a 
company that has an alcohol background from a founding standpoint, but you still got to choose wisely amongst them. But there's a big catalyst moment. You're seeing it already, but yesterday was a big day that today has held, which Danny is usually going to be a rallying cannabis for a day and he's gone. You don't want to be the guy in the Indiana Jones movie, Danny, that chose poorly. You, you saw what happened to him. You don't want no. to choose poorly. I'll say this. I did feel should... like the guy in Indiana Jones getting my heart ripped out for the last <laughs> or, 12 months. So. <laughs> That's how you do Or your face I got melted that. Off. Or your face melted off. Right. So, you just did I all got three that. You just did all three. Yep. So it's interesting you mentioned Erwin. So I would encourage people to go back and look what Erwin Simon did at Haines Celestial, turn that place around. And I think to your point, Brady, he's been basically putting together in just a very steadfast brick by brick motion, this thing that you're talking about. So here you go. I think it was five years ago, at me if I'm wrong, but Constellation Brands made a pretty meaningful investment in the space. When do we see on the timeline, when do we hear from Eli Lilly or Pfizer or Merck or one of the big cap farmers? pharmaceutical companies making a big push into this space. It's going to take that rescheduling to actually go through, I think, is where you'll see it happen. If you were to ask my honest opinion, I think alcohol and tobacco will have a more meaningful seat at the table in cannabis. I see pharmaceutical industry focusing very hard on the psilocybin magic mushroom industry. Some of those preliminary studies that have come out of that, and yeah, I've done my own informal studies for years, but some of those studies have shown that the psilocybin and microdoses in U.S. actual peer reviewed studies was 50 to 60% more effective in treating the symptoms of depression than any over-the-counter depression medication. They are paying attention and there's a lot of public companies in the shroom space that are very thinly traded with not the best balance sheets, but they've got some good IP. I'd expect them to, Pharma to, to show up in a big way on those, but I don't know how big of a play Pharma will be in cannabis. We're obviously attuned to who's sniffing around and already doing stuff. We've got great partnerships with Sunburn and already in the alcohol industry. Alcohol, I think, will be the most meaningful because they can't let seltzer happen again. And if you look kind of more broadly within the alcohol industry, a lot of the traditional categories are on the downtrend and they need new categories. And if you look at alcohol consumption versus cannabis consumption, there's a great study that came out and survey that came out over the last month where it's actually, especially among millennials and younger folks, it's cannabis usage is quickly eclipsing alcohol use and they're paying attention. I can tell you from the people we work with in the industry, they're all paying attention at what this is going to do. And it's not going to be rolling a joint that they're focused on. It's cannabis infused beverage, which makes what Irwin's doing interesting. And it's gummies. We launched a product here in Florida called a Nectar and you can actually use it to make mocktails. My wife now, she'll go to the bar, order a margarita virgin, put two drops in. She can dose herself two milligrams and have a great time. Still be social. Because that's always a knock on cannabis. Nobody wants to be the guy that smells like weed at a party in the corner by yourself eating Doritos. With the with, if you're having, you can have a cocktail in your hand, which is the social norm. Be social, but still then not have the hangover the next day. It's the big thing. By the way, Danny, I don't know if he told these guys, but some of these beverages like Canopy and others are testing zero calories, zero sugar, and then you get up the next day, no hangover. No hangover. So for me. No pain locker I was is, saying, is a big deal. Guy, Constellation Brands owns Corona. I knew that. Snoop Dogg has been a spokesperson I love doing ads. Snoop Dogg. As is your boy Why Eli choose? Manning. But can I tell you, those commercials, by the way, Brady, they're the funniest commercials on television. But why when is they're doing, beach, why do you think great. Snoop Dogg is, you don't think they're going to, you don't think they've already taped those ads already for potential uh, TC? I, I mean, that's just my thought. There. I know Brady agrees with that. There's, it that, was a very random. interesting, it was a very interesting choice of spokespeople given what's going on. And I believe a coincidence is I've just never seen one. Exactly. Listen, All right. Time. So socks are having a run. You're right, Brady. They're backing it up. The green thumb, the which is GTBIF because you got to trade it obviously on a pink sheet, which is ridiculous. It's a multi-billion market cap. Tilray, T-L-R-Y is moving. All the liquid names are kind of moving here. And this seems to feel real. Last question, Brady, how long is this going to take? You think it's an election type thing that happens in a year or what What are your thoughts? It's going to be a process. So I think you'll see the DEA accept the recommendation would be my bet sometime around year end. I think you'll see then there's a rulemaking process that has to go into effect to promulgate it that has a public comment period. And I think you'll see the whole process kind of have a ceremonial wrap up sometime, probably this time next year-ish to time up with the, the 2024 generals. The president can score max points heading into the what will be the final stretch of the 2024 general. So I think that would be kind of my timing guess. It could be quicker, it could be slower, but that's what I'm planning for. And I think you're going to see the real work's going to start in how to, if federal government had taken on this issue in the early stages, it'd be a little bit easier when there was only three or four states. Now with 40 states having their own independent programs, most of those created by constitutional amendments to the state's constitutions, now that they really can't dictate a lot. So I think you're going to see this get largely treated very similar to alcohol from a distribution standpoint or regulation standpoint. 
going to be largely a deferral to the states to maintain and respect each state's individual programs with some federal top line guidelines. It's going to be, that's going to be where the real work is done. It's in that rulemaking process. It's the process we'll be engaged in with been added up there since 15, but that's going to be where the real work's done. I think that work starts later this fall and will continue through Q1. And the last thing I think is important to note is with all these changes, brands become more to the forefront. Brady and the team have built an incredible brand with Sunburn. And Brady mentioned, we call it Sunburn in the wild. People see it all over the place in various airports. Dan, you were in an airport in LaGuardia and saw Sunburn hat. So we're on our way out of here, Brady. Give us a quick update on Sunburn. You guys obviously kicking ass in Florida, which I'm well aware of. A quick update there, and then we'll let you go because I know you're very busy. What's been awesome about is establishing a brand. There's been very few brands, true scalable brands that are not just regional or not just retail experiences. So that's what we've really endeavored to do. We're seeing it happen where... We're experiencing the overall Florida market's growing at less than 1% month over month. We're growing. Our new patient growth is 26%. We got revenue growing month over month. We got revenue growing at like 14.5% month over month. But the staff that I care the most about is our retention rate is north of 70%, which means the brand's working. Once we get a consumer in the store and they learn about the brand story and they get a chance to try the products and be a part of it, we're retaining seven out of 10 of those people that come see us. It's exciting. It's a lot of work because it's truly running a hyper-local strategy, but we have that. Plus we've got some amazing partnerships and doing a bunch of R&D in the alcohol space, which we're excited about and, and pioneering what could be the first beverage to come to the East Coast. So we're excited. It's a, it's an exciting time. It's a shit ton of work, but it's fun. Thanks for coming on. I'll let you get back to it. And I know the next update is going to be a positive one as well. It's coming, boys. So. I love Brady Cobb. I love Brady Cobb from the first time I met him. I used to say he should have been like a quarterback at Florida State. With that name, Fly good looks. Ice. You guys got a tough game. LSU as an opening game is not. You don't want to start with LSU. Where? In Where's Orlando? the line? Oh. Where's the lot? What's the line at, Moses? I think it's two and a half or three. Their D lineman's out, for the record. Okay. Who's D lineman? Starting, they're starting DNs out. So our running game, I don't know. We beat them last year. I on know you did. Ridiculous field goal, blocked field goal with no time left. So it is going to be proper hot. It's an outdoor game in Orlando. Best of luck with that and sunburn, and we will talk soon, my man. All right, Brady. Thanks, man. See you guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.